Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Metadata. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 316 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in Ann Arbor. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we took an up-to-date look at home offices, some new ideas and trends, and, and what works best these days. And that was before I learned about Steelcase's upcoming new line of Frank Lloyd Wright-inspired office furniture. In this episode, we look at the rapidly growing Internet of Things, especially what all these sensors are looking at and collecting and listening to, and why we might want to care more about what is being done with that data. Tom, what's all on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, we will indeed be taking an updated look at connected devices and how they might affect you, whether it's in your practice or whether just as a regular person. I think that's more the case these days. In our second segment, we're going to update you on what we're doing and maybe some of our new projects. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. But first up, the Internet of Things and what it's up to these days. Uh, we first covered the Internet of Things 10 years ago. It is, it is at least that old. Uh, episode 97. Uh, so we hadn't even made it to 100 episodes when we first started covering this. We revisited it again about four years ago, episode 218 uh, in, two, 20, in 2018. Um, and now it's four years later, episode 316. We figured it was time for another check-in. Uh, Dennis, this time around, are we only talking about things connected to the internet? Yeah, you know, I was I was thinking that it could be that that 2018 episode we marked the crossing point or the crossover point where uh, there were more devices connected to the internet than than humans because that that happened a, a, a few years back. Um, I, I I sort of it, it's a funny funny th- thing uh, to use that term uh, to talk about Internet of Things because it really we are really talking about things that are connected to the internet, you know, and it's uh, typically not laptops, not phones, but all the other stuff that's that's connected, and there's there is a lot of it. So, I looked at some statistics, and uh, I was seeing from fourteen to thirty-one billion Internet of Things devices uh, these days, and they they account for half to two-thirds of all the devices connected to the internet. So we're talking about all those things other than the computers, the laptops, the phones, those sorts of things. Um, And estimate is there are 20 devices in each home these days connected to the internet. It's and you're just seeing them all over the place, from from toothbrushes uh, to scales that you're weighing yourself uh, to toasters to to other things like that, where uh, things can be connected to the internet. Uh, your Alexa and other devices, those kinds of things, and um, 
And it's just really interesting to see how much there is these days. And I'm not sure that 20 number, it seems like if you take a walk around your house, and I know around your house, Tom, you probably get to 20 pretty quickly. I did, and I'll actually give you that number in just a second. What I find interesting is that there doesn't seem to be a lot of consensus on the number of IoT devices that are out there, and, and, and the numbers vary widely. I found the number 14 billion like you did, but I also found the number 48 billion, which doesn't give me a lot of confidence with such a wide range there. And, and what's interesting is that back in 2018, we estimated that by 2020, there would be 20 billion devices connected. Um, I'm actually going to gonna be a little cynical and say that it is closer to the 14 than it is to the 48. And part of the reason for that is over the past one or two years, we've had a big chip shortage issue. And chips are what go into connected devices. Chips are what go into the sensors that we're going to be talking about. And as a result, that has resulted in fewer devices being made. So I'm going to argue that it's not the 48. It's probably not the 30. It's probably closer to the 14. Um, Dennis, to your point, I looked at my Eero. By the way, if you are using an Eero or if you are using a mesh uh, a, a mesh uh, network in your uh, in your home, you can see through your app how many devices are connected to your wireless network. And uh, as of yesterday, we had 29 devices connected to our wireless network. And then it said that there might be another six that also were connected at some point in time. Um, so 35 devices. Let me give you two other uh, fun facts. Um, in 2021, there were an estimated 250 mil, 258 million smart homes. So homes that had smart equipment in them that are smart lights, uh, door locks, plugs, um, sprinkler systems, things that are connected to the internet and can, and, and can work auto, in an automated way for you. That is only 12% of the houses in the United States. Um, that is expected to grow... Or is that just a U.S.? I'm not sure if that's a U.S. or an international stat. Anyway, it's expected to grow to 400 million by 2025. And I, I know you want to talk about this topic in just a minute, Dennis, but they are estimating that the amount of data generated by or collected by, generated by, whatever, however you want to think about it, by uh, Internet of Things devices is expected to reach 73.1 zettabytes by 2025. And for reference, a zettabyte is 1 trillion gigabytes. So whole lot of data that's going to be collected. And I think that's kind of where we're going to focus a lot of our talk today. Get you thinking about e-discovery uh, right away when you hear those kinds of numbers. So much e-discovery. Uh, so I like to think of the Internet of Things in terms of sensors, um, you know, so and there's a weird thing these days that in a certain in some cases, it's actually easier and uh, to to, you know, to put the chips in, to put the uh, the mechanisms in there. So you, you have Internet connectivity of uh, then it's easier to do that than not to do that at, at this point. It's almost like it's, uh, you know, the default. 
Um, and and then also I think it's it gets to be kind of hard to figure out like what uh, how you do count these things. Like, is a car just one? big Internet of Things device, or is it, you know, many Internet of Things sensors that just happen to be housed in a car? And the fact is that 90% of cars that are sold, 130 million worldwide, now have Internet uh, connectivity. So it's, uh, it's there's really a lot happening out there um, these days. I got thinking about this because uh, our friend Sabrina Pacifici and her her blog Be Specific uh, linked to a popular science article about connected cars putting your privacy at risk and they uh they talked about you know just the cars and how the uh how much data they collect and, and generate which uh they use the example of a 2018 chevrolet volt generated up to 25 gigabytes per hour of data across every category imaginable and starts this, uh, and they describe this sort of new uh, field, I guess, or our new approach called telematics just to describe this type of data collect, gathering and collection. Well, and, you know, for I'm, I'm assuming that, that there are many of our listeners out there who, who have automobiles that are equipped with OnStar, with the OnStar system. And my father's car has is connected to OnStar. And every month, he gets an email from, from OnStar that tells him, here's the health of your car. Here we hear the current uh, uh, pressure in your tire, all four tires. Um, we've noticed that your oil is at uh, 20%. You might think about going in for an oil change at this point. Um, but also, also kind of amazing to me is, is that if they notice anything at all emergent happening, he gets an immediate notification, an email saying, Hey, we noticed, uh, an alarm just went off in your airbag on the passenger side. You might want to take it in and get it, get it looked at. And so it is communicating regularly. And, and I would say in a timely fashion and to an extent, that's an awesome service. The, the ability to know all of that stuff. Um, I, I, I want to know all that. I want to know everything that's going on about my car in that way and being notified that way is great. Um, I think on the other hand, um, having all of that stuff is terrifying as well. And, and I guess it depends. Uh, uh, it it, it kind of depends in what context you're going to talk about. I think as we introduce this next set of topics, I'm going to have more to say about sort of the privacy implications of collecting all that information. But Dennis, where do you want to go from here? Well, I think that I do want to talk about that, kind of touch on some of the unique issues or or I say new issues that are coming up. And some of this is that once you start to have all this data and aggregate it and look at it, it it actually can be a a little frightening. So uh, there was a even back in 2013, there's a study in Nature that said that if you uh, looked at sort of GPS locations uh, with four space and time points are enough to uniquely identify 95% of individuals in when they were using a data set of 1.5 million people. Um, so that's, you know, so you're worried about protecting, you know, like the traditional personally identifiable information. And just from the GPS information, uh, they, they were able to identify 
individuals 95% of the time. And obviously, there's many other devices out there uh, that are collecting data. I think there's a really interesting issue with the Internet of Things of, you know, the things that are constantly connected to the Internet versus the things that check into the Internet. Uh, you know, so they're gathering information and then when they're a actually able to connect to the Internet, uh, that's when it gets uploaded. I go back to Kevin Kelly's book, The Inevitable, um, and I think he would say it's inevitable that if data can be collected, it will be collected. And the challenge is how we as a society let that data be used. And we're already starting to see this um, sort of socially and, and politically. So there's a lot of discussion right now that with, uh, you know, uh, location information, other information, that uh, there are implications uh, if Roe versus Wade is overturned and you're looking at abortion and abortion, uh, uh, the providing of abortion and how data uh, collection has an impact on that. Uh, potentially in terms of criminal law. I, I think the U.S. and most of the world made a decision with COVID that we didn't want to go into the depths of location and contact uh, tracking that we might have gone. So, so that data is out there to be collected and analyzed. The challenge, I think, is uh, how are we as uh, going to make a decision about how we actually do use that? Well, let's take it a little bit further, and, and I want to introduce um, a new term to everyone, or it may be new to you, may not be, and that is IOMT, the Internet of Medical Things. So kind of aligned with what Dennis was just talking about, um, that continues to expand. And, and just talking about consumer things, the Apple Watch that Dennis is wearing right now collects so much data. Now, of course, Apple will never do anything with that, right? Right? They're never going to do anything. But... You might have an aura ring. You might have a whoops, whoops band. I've been looking at that lately. It looks kind of like an awesome way to measure a bunch of things about your health, and it's collecting a bunch of stuff. Um, they During the time of COVID, they they developed, lots of employers developed cameras uh, to, to measure social distancing so that you can see what's going on. Um, but there is there is such been such a surge fueled by the COVID pan, the pandemic Um at wearable health monitoring to extend in-home treatment. So, so to prevent and allow doctors to provide services without the risks of bringing sick people all into one place, that, that it makes it easier to monitor. So devices that perform virtual office visits. Um, my dad's blood sugar monitor that every twice a day I get a notification of what his blood sugar is. Um, my blood pressure m machine, my scales, um, wheelchairs, defibrillators, oxygen pumps, all of it's connected, and it's all taking personal information. This is all medical information. We've kind of moved from beyond whether my oil ta uh, oil is 20% from, from getting, uh, we need to get it uh, replaced to, you know, what is my, what is my blood pressure? What is my blood sugar? Do I have some kind of condition that an insurance company might be interested uh, in? Um, it gets a lot more concerning. So uh, there's huge benefits to all this, but I think there's huge risks as well. I think it, it, we're going to just keep coming back to, like, what is the tr trade-off that we're willing to make? Uh, because there's a lot of things that are possible. 
Uh, people are talking about you could have a, a built-in breathalyzer in your car, a breathalyzer in your car that would keep you from even starting your car if your blood alcohol was too high. And uh, that sounds like a good thing, um, but but is it? And how does that compare to, I think, Tom, you make a great point of the knowing that you, you're this close to an oil change or something breaking down in your car is one thing, but knowing health information about you uh, could be something different and something else, other information like the speed you're driving or other things like that that could have a legal implication also become significant. So I think that's the debate that we're going to have to, uh, we'll see play out over the next few years. All right, we've got a lot more to say, but first we need to take a quick break for a message from our sponsors. Get civil and you get a fast, custom-built website that looks great, brings you clients, and drops them right into your firm's systems. Civil partners perfectly with small firms by building the fastest sites in legal, handling digital marketing, enhancing your leads, and providing transparent analytics. They're civil to your other tech, too. Civil websites integrate with all legal case management systems, including Clio, Smokeball, MyCase, and Lawmatics. Get a free site audit with a no-obligation 15-minute demo about what Civil can do for your website. GetCivil.com. That's G-E-T-C-I-V-I-L-L-E.com. All rise with Civil. Contract automation isn't a trend. It's a strategic imperative. Though big players in the e-sign world will make you believe implementing it will cost you big bucks and more than a few headaches, it doesn't have to be that way. DocuB is an easy to onboard, full suite of products and includes e-signature, brilliant workflow capabilities, and AI contract automation at nearly half the price of those out-of-touch behemoths. The one thing DocuB doesn't automate? Their customer service. Visit get.docub.com slash contracts to set up a call with a real live person. DocuB will be with you every step of the way. And we are back. So, Tom, what the heck do we need to be doing if there is anything that we can do now? I think that if there's anything that we can do is kind of a is is kind of tough because I think that the, it is hard to know. Um, I, I I'm not sure we can ever really know all the devices that are tracking us. I mean, I I can look at my list of what's connected to my Eero network, and I know. Those devices, to some extent, are tracking me. I have an idea of what I have in in the house. I know that I just connected my refrigerator um, to my Wi-Fi network so it could tell me um, when the ice ran out or when the filter needed replacing. Um, But... um, what about in just every day, you know, any around and about? When are you being monitored by sensors that you're not aware of? So I don't know that it's ever going to be possible to figure out how many devices are capable of tracking you. I think that the smarter move is just to understand that you are capable of being monitored in a multitude of places and ways and design your life accordingly and just decide, you know, here's how I plan to accept or not accept. You know, I've, I've mentioned multiple times how I'm, you know, the Google fanboy and I know that they collect a lot of information with me and I've made peace about that from a certain perspective. Um, and I think that you have to go through sort of the same risk analysis as well as to, to understand what might be out there, what might be possible, because I don't think it's possible to learn about everything and, and, and decide with what amount of risk you're willing to put up with. 
You know, I th- I think, and I sort of challenge our listeners to do this, to do what you did, Tom, is just like, just on your own Wi-Fi system in your house, figure out how many devices are, you know, are already, uh, you know, attached to the internet and, and just kind of figuring out like how many devices at home, at work, you know, in your car, the places you go are capable of tracking us. We were in the uh, AT&T store today and the uh, the salesperson just made the comment, you know, like the, where there's, there are seven H, HDTV uh, cameras on us, you know, looking at us right now, you know. And so, and you look up at the ceiling, you go, oh yeah, I, I do see some of those. So I think more and more, we're going to find that we're being videoed. It's other things. I think, you know, Tom, you point to the fact that, uh, you know, with the watch, I'm accepting a certain amount of information, but also the phones are, are you know, also, uh, you know, really uh, tracking a lot of information as well. So I sort of feel like it's best to assume that a, vi- a device can track you in some way. It is tracking you in some way because it's it's almost like I said harder to uh, build the device in a way and set it up in a way to not track you than it is to track you. And so and then I think that takes you to the next step, which in in its own way, in a personal way, time, I think it gets you into your world of information governance is, is figuring out like what's being collected and then how do we figure out uh, how it can be used? There's good news and bad news there, frankly, because if you're really interested in learning more about what devices collect on you, the, the good news is there are more privacy laws being enacted that give you the right to seek that information. Um, You know, GDPR in Europe allows you to do this. California Consumer Protection Act uh, does the same thing. Um, Some of these others in Virginia and Colorado and I think Delaware and some other states that are getting ready to pass legislation all have the ability to make a subject request, subject access request where you can understand what it is. Um, But that's that's probably going to be the only way that you can really find out exactly what information that they're keeping on you. They probably, unless they are, unless you go to their website, let me, let's back up. That's the other way to, to, to do it is you can make a request or if they're following the law, if they're really complying, going to the owners of the sensors or the devices that are tracking you, um, they should be putting that information in their privacy notices. They should be putting it in their applicable information on the website, and they are violating certain privacy laws if they do not do that. Now, if you're not a California resident or a Virginia resident, they may not have any obligation to you to do that. But, um, you know, that information that for the California resident is likely also applicable to me in Texas because they're probably not collecting any different information between the two states. Um, that's I, that's really, I think, one of the, the, the only ways to find it out. Look at the privacy statement, or if you really want to dig in deep, um, make that subject request if you have the right to do so under a particular law. The other challenge is, is that in my line of work, very few companies, are, other than the very biggest companies, are actually prepared to do that. They're not actually prepared to respond to those requests. They, they really have no idea how to track it down and find it and look for it and in delete it if they need to do that. But, uh, you know, I think for me, the best personal advice is know all the devices that can track you. Like I said, just do a, a survey of what you've got and try to generally understand what information they might be tracking and then dig in deep if it happens to be something that is sensitive that you really do have a concern about uh, a loss of privacy on. I would say the other thing is that, you know, some 
some companies may be doing the the best that they think they can. They just may not know what all is going on, you know, because of uh, of how these devices are put together. And then, then I, I think also as we look at the traditional data privacy laws, uh, a lot of this information is that's being collected doesn't really fit into the traditional personal, personally identifiable information uh, categories. And we do have these things where you say, like, if you aggregate or, you know, a few things and look at them together, uh, you can learn more than maybe in those traditional uh, PII categories. The other big thing, and we could probably do, uh, you could probably do like a three-day seminar on all these issues, uh, but is uh, cybersecurity on Internet of Things is huge, right? We've we've talked, I think, in previous episodes about people breaking into networks by going through the aquarium filter and, you know, other things like that. So uh, once you have something connected to the Internet, you're opening up, you know, definitely security uh, or insecurity vectors. Um, and there's tons of tons of stories about that. Well, a couple of statistics in that area. In 2021, the, just the first six months of 2021, there were estimated 1.5 billion attacks against IoT devices. And that's 1.5 in the first six months. That exceeded, I think the number was 900 million in uh, 20, all of 2020. So it's increasing, like you might expect. Uh, Gartner says that more than 25% of all cyber attacks against businesses involve IoT devices. Um, and then just think about, think about attacks like Dennis talked about um, that can happen if, if IoT devices are breached. You know, Dennis just talked about the car being one big sensor. What if someone could get into the system for thousands of connected cars, what could they do all at once? Could they do they have the power to do that, or if they just do that, you know, I've read, I, I like to read thriller books, and I've read more than one book where somebody's gotten the car and someone's hacked into their brake system, and suddenly the brakes don't work anymore. And that's not just a you know pie in the sky type thing. That's something that can happen. But the flip side of this actually is by collecting all of this data, it also helps the companies that are manufacturing the, infer the these devices help at creating algorithms that predict and prevent the cyber attacks. So it's helping understanding how it's being used, how it's being uh, looked at, um, that can help prevent and, and help increase security as well. So it's a little bit of a uh, good, good and bad to all of that. Yeah, and, and it's cars, drones, you know, the security impl implications of a hacked drone are, are pretty s substantial as, as well. Uh, so I think there's lots of implications with this. And, and it's easy, f I think, for lawyers to look at all the negatives. And so I, I felt, and this is one thing that I really uh, tried to teach to my students, is that with any new technologies in law, that you can you can take up all these risks and that's what lawyers are known for but it's really important for the lawyers of today and tomorrow to understand the positives and because that's where you can really give good advice to people and it, it changes your way of thinking about this so uh just just a couple of examples that 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 i was thinking about is that 
you know, I watch all these uh, detective shows and, uh, you know, like the, the classic thing is like, okay, so where were you between, uh, you know, 10 and two o'clock last night? You go like, I was home. And they go like, is anybody with you who can confirm that? And they go, no, I was home by myself or I was sleeping. And they treat it as if that's no alibi at all. And that, that person becomes a suspect. If you go like, oh, I was wearing my watch and my watch shows that I was asleep and I was in my bed, then all of a sudden you have the perfect alibi and it's proved up and, and you don't have to like try to figure out if your neighbor happened to be looking through the window to see you sleeping. Or my, or my ring doorbell captured me unlocking my apartment door and walking into my apartment at 10 o'clock and never leaving again. So Right. And then the other thing I ran into, which is not totally an Internet of Things, but uh, some of the stuff is just good as a memory aid. You know, you just go like, oh, uh, how many, you know, how many times did I ride my bike last month? Or I was at the dentist and they said, uh, we were talking about when I had a crown put on. And I go, I don't know. It was like maybe a year or so ago. And they looked and they go, oh, it was like October. And you go like, oh, that's amazing that this data exists and it's accessible. So I think some of these things where you could say there are benefits and and you gave a couple and, and I just thought of like some simple ones. But I think some of the stuff actually, if we think about the positives, um, then we can say, oh, some of these can be actually used in law practice or in representing clients clients as well. All right, Dennis, we, we're, we're running long on this segment. Um, any tips, recommendations, parting words uh, for thoughts on this subject? Yeah, I, I think that this is a place where you're thinking like, oh, maybe Congress will protect, uh, you know, pass some laws to protect us. I don't think that's likely um, in the next few years. So I think it, you're talking about self-help. You're talking about due diligence, those sorts of things. I think this is an important thing. I think understanding what's out there, getting a sense of what might be collected, uh, you know, being collected about you, about when you see you have an option to buy, say, like a new electric toothbrush that has internet connection or it doesn't, you know, that you make a, a, a decision about you know, are there really pros or cons, you know, what are the pros and cons of that? So I think just becoming sort of more aware and say, uh, the number the number of devices connected, the number of sensors, uh, especially once we get over you know past the chip shortages, we're just going to see you know exponential increase in these things and the amount of, of data. Um, so that becomes important. And I still think that for lawyers, this is you know really pushing us to the world where if you're saying all we're looking at are documents and email, we're not looking at the most important evidence. All right. Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsors. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. A website from Civil fills your new client pipeline. Prospects find you through powerful SEO and smart intake forms make it easy to integrate with Clio, Smokeball, Lawmatics, and MyCase. Never lose another lead. 
Get your civil bundle, website, SEO, content marketing, and Google business profile management free for 60 days from the legal industry's best end-to-end lead generation platform. Book your demo at getcivil.com. That's getcivill.com. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. So I was thinking the other day, Tom, that, well, longtime listeners know who we are. New listeners might not. And, um, and other than our upcoming new work from home edition of our collaboration tools and technologies book, uh, some listeners might not know some of the new projects we're involved in these days. So I thought it was just like a good time at this point this point nothing magical to to do like a little bit of uh reintroduction of ourselves and where we are these days and uh i convinced tom to go along with me so tom let's let's start with you who the heck are you so my name is tom mile um i am chief operating officer of contoral we are information governance consultants and information governance is a discipline that uh probably Earlier in an earlier time was better known and, and maybe still known to most people as records management. But records management only describes a part of what we do. Information governance really talks about the life cycle of information and, and, and managing information throughout an organization in all of the ways that it needs to be managed. So it's not just records management. It's not just making sure that things are stored in the right place and having a retention schedule and keeping information in a certain period of time. It's about privacy. It's about how do we protect that information that needs to be protected. It's about um, information security. How do we we're protecting the privacy on the one hand, but we're protecting the security on the other. They are two very distinct issues here because you want to protect security of all sorts of information, but not all of that information you're protecting is personal information. So they're two separate but uh, and very distinct uh, concepts. And then finally, you want to talk about um, litigation and e-discovery because how do we make sure that we are able to respond appropriately if we get sued or if there's a regulatory investigation or if we have an internal investigation into something that we need to deal with. So I work a lot with organizations. We put together programs for them. We help them get better control over their information. Knowing that many of you are working at law firms, my guess is you're keeping most of the documents you have permanently, forever. Um, and while from a client standpoint, that may be um, you know, a risk-averse way to deal with it, um, we also find that the amount of what I'll call non-records, or I, we like to refer to it as ROT, the redundant, out-of-date, and trivial information, probably makes up 20 to 40% of all the documents you ha- may have somewhere. It's just a lot of copies, a lot of duplicates, um, a lot of old, outdated things that you no longer need. And we help organizations clean that stuff up and get better organized, which makes them more productive. That's kind of what I do day in and day out. I draft schedules. I I create strategies. I do lots of e-discovery procedures for companies. Um, We do implementations where we are very heavily into Microsoft 365 because we do believe that it is the most cost-effective information governance tool that's out there right now. Um, Because 
most organizations have it, um, so why not take advantage of the tools that it has rather than spend a million dollars on a standalone document management system? Um, but that's kind of my day-to-day work. I very much enjoy what I do. I like working. It allows me to work both with lawyers and legal department on process and, and risk-based issues, but also work in the field of technology, implementing a lot of these tools. Um, that gives me almost no time for projects. So right now, there's no projects for me, so I'm going to uh, turn it over to you, Dennis, and say, how about you? Who are you, Dennis? Well, I will say for you that the big project is is so close to done, we can almost taste it, which is the, the new book. Well, I, but, that's right. I don't really count that as a project because we're, <laughs> we, we are in the, such, such the, the home stretch that there's not a lot left to do. Very excited about it and look forward. Look, everybody stay tuned for more announcements and maybe more episodes on the topics in the book. So uh, as people may know, I retired from MasterCard as an in-house counsel about four years ago and, uh, and did a little adjunct teaching and now find myself as the uh, uh, director of the something called the Center for Law, Technology, and Innovation at Michigan State University, and I teach a couple classes there. I'm also teaching a class um, at uh, Michigan Law School, which means I always have to be careful about which colors and uh, logos I wear, uh, depending on uh, you know who my audience is. Um, so I sort of have this summer off, and I'm doing a new thing I'll talk about in the Parting Shots that I call Legal Innovations as a Service for Law Departments. Um, and I'm doing a, a number of projects that are all sort of uh, around the notion of uh, innovation in law. Uh, with what's going to be a law department focus, because uh, there's a ton of people uh, doing this stuff for for law firms. So I just want to be at a place where no one else is, as I kind of um, design the path toward uh, what looks like a more normal retirement. Um, and and probably one of my projects is is working with a coach to to help me to help me do that. So that's what I'm up to. Uh, these days, and uh, it's it's nice to be in the the academic rhythm where you find that you have a couple months of, of the summer off. Now it's time for our parting shots. That one tip website or observation you can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. So back when I was in high school, I went through a brief phase where I was obsessed with the idea of speed reading and learning how to speed read, um, and. I kind of grew out of that. I enjoy the notion of reading. I don't read anywhere near as fast as Dennis reads. I'm not sure, Dennis, that you speed read or you're just preternaturally fast about things. Um, but I, I, I've, I've not been a speed reader for many years. And that's why I was intrigued when I found this uh, website called bionic-reading.com, which is operated on the premise that it guides the eyes through text with artificial fixation points. And what that means is is that they highlight certain letters in a word and that the reader focuses on those highlighted letters and lets the brain complete the word that might be around them. And as a result, it means that they are able to read faster and understand better and get it all done. And I'm intrigued by the concept. I, 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 I read through it. It felt like it was fast reading for me. Um, they offer a Chrome extension so that you can put it in your browser and it will 
highlight the text on a page that you're trying to read. Um, there's a reading converter where you can upload a document and it will convert it to this bionic reading format for you. Um, you there are also a few of the Read It Later apps or the, or the RSS apps like Reader 5 and Fiery Feeds um, uh, have that, have it available and built in. So I think it's intriguing if you want kind of, um, kind of, uh, upgrade your reading speed or, or, or comprehension. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure of the scientific success of this, but I'm, as someone who used to be obsessed with speed reading, I'm kind of, uh, vaguely curious in whether this is something that would work. Dennis. I, I like all these things that are saying, like, how do we cope with information overload? And sometimes the choke point is the the speed that we read at. Um, and so I like those approaches. Um, I think summarization is another approach that uh, helps you speed read in a way. So, so like something like Get Abstract that does, does summaries. The uh, There's definitely this movement toward you know, listening to audio at, at uh, you know, one and a half to double speed. I, I talked to somebody the other day who is who looks at YouTube videos at uh, one and a half to double speed. So people are sort of coping by saying, like, can we can we re- kind of ease the choke point that our reading speed or that real time gives us to so we can do, go through things faster and have the same comprehension. Um, so that's a really interesting one time I'll have to take a look at. So what I would talk about in my party shot is just just a, a pitch uh, and an explanation for the new thing I'm doing, which is legal innovation as a service, I call it, uh, for law departments. So you can find more about that on uh, my website. It, it's sort of builds off of my book, Successful Innovation Outcomes in Law. I feel that there's a lot of people who uh, who want to advise law departments. I'm not sure how well law departments listen uh, to, to advice on innovation, but I think where, where I can help and sort of my uniqueness and value is with law departments and what law departments are doing innovation. So I just kind of, it's a quasi productized service sort of for different approaches, fixed price, just in time, just enough uh, uh, guidance on uh, helping you uh, have more successful innovation outcomes in a law department. And uh, I, I'm can't wait to try it as an experiment uh, to really, uh, I mean, I'm in love with the idea, so it's time to test it in the real world. So that's what I'm going to be doing this summer is uh, putting that out there so you can see a a lot more from me about this and innovation with a focus on, on law departments. Very exciting. Can't wait to hear more. And so that wraps up for this edition of the Kennedy Ma Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. You can find show notes for this episode on the Legal Talk Network's page for the show. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes on the Legal Talk Network site where you can find archives of all of our previous podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. If you'd like to get in touch with us, reach out to us on LinkedIn. Uh, you can reach out to us on Twitter as well, or leave us a voicemail. We'd love to get questions for our B segment. That number is 720-441-6820. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. And you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. And we'll see you next time for another episode of the Kennedy Mile Report on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book. 
The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network. <laughs>